Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode five of Platform Enterprise, the show that platforms the projects and visions of people all over the world working hard to make their impact a positive one. I'm your host, Rachel Donald, and today I'm thrilled to announce that I've just launched the Platform Enterprise newsletter, a home for the stories that matter. See, here's the thing. We have just one decade to solve the climate crisis, and in that time we've also got to save democracy, limit big tech, sanction the market, and elect politicians who are actually willing to adequately tax the billionaires. Even though these problems are obviously connected, they are too often treated as separate crises, which means things aren't getting better. The Platform Enterprise newsletter is an attempt to report on what connects these crises by platforming stories underreported by a reactive news cycle. Through original reporting and analysis, I hope to create a clearer picture of the global state of affairs. The story published each week will be an investigation inspired by the interviews shared on this podcast. For example, after speaking with Lisa Lux last week about the microeconomy she's creating in Beirut, I investigated Lebanon's poverty crisis and found out that the UN's proposal for a solidarity tax on Lebanon's wealthiest has been ignored, despite over half of the population living in poverty. You can read the full story by going to stories.platformenterprise.com. Don't forget to subscribe to get the weekly report and hit subscribe to this podcast too. On that note, the podcast and newsletter will always be free. Writing reviews and sharing are a great support and thank you to everyone who has done so. If you enjoy the content and have the means, please consider getting a paid subscription to the newsletter, which will enable me to keep sharing the stories that matter and interviewing people who are genuinely trying to make a difference. One of those people is today's guest, Alina Kilpatrick. Alina is an asylum lawyer based in the U.S. who helps people crossing the U.S.-Mexico border reunite with their loved ones and fight to stay in the United States. Alina actually started practicing asylum law after Trump's victory in 2016 because she knew people crossing the border would need more help than ever. And during our conversation, she really details how the plight of asylum seekers became subject to cruelty and injustice under the Trump administration. Uh, Considering this is the first day of uh, Biden's presidency, if you are listening to this podcast on the day it comes out, uh, this is a real eye-opener as to what we can expect will change for the good now that Trump is out of office. I found this conversation really educational and harrowing. So I urge you, if you learned something, please share it. I imagine we all know people who need to hear it. So, Alina, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Lovely to speak with you. Why don't you just introduce uh, yourself and what you do for people that don't know you? Well, my name is Alina Kilpatrick, and I am a, I'm an asylum lawyer in Richmond, Virginia, in the United States. So, And I work in cooperation with a nonprofit. So what I do is I try to help people who are seeking asylum in the United States stay in the United States and not get back and and not get sent back to their countries where they may very well die. Right. Okay. Um, So would this primarily be at the border then, or do you have clients from all around the world? Well, I have clients primarily from what we call the Northern Triangle, which is Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. And my clients have gotten through the border. So 
I'm not on the border. Um, I'm not in those detention centers. My clients have miraculously gotten through that hump and are now in deportation proceedings in, here in the United States in Trump's immigration courts. Okay, so that's what I, I do. Okay, back up a little bit. So they, they get through that process at the border and get into the United States only to be put back into deportation facilities. So American immigration is just, it's so super fucked up. So I mean, it, so what, what these people have to do is they have to get out of their countries, get up through Mexico, which is super dangerous. Um, your, the rates of kidnapping and extortion are very, very high. My female clients will go get shots of Depo Provera before they leave their countries because they just expect to be raped. We just expect it. Um, oh, wow. What what is Depo Provera? It's that shot that you get. It's a birth control shot that you get that um, keep. It's like a th- birth control for three months. As opposed yeah, the to injection, right? The injection, right? As opposed to taking pills. So they go and um, they get their shot, and then they go on this horrible, horrible trip, and then. They cross the border. Now, right now, right now, today, so we're recording this in November of 2020, right after the election. So right now, this minute, um, today, this is not happening because today, number one, two massive hurricanes just hit the Northern Triangle. Um, So that's impacting the region. And number two, it's very hard to get through the U.S. border right now because Trump has shut it down due to COVID. So what mm-hmm. I'm describing is historically what the who what my clients have been through. Who the people who I'm helping now, this is their journey. So they go up through Mexico. They um, try to avoid the um, organized crime elements that are in Mexico. Um, they try to avoid Mexican immigration, which is ex- which has its own problems with corruption. And if somehow or another you can get through that, it's just like this crazy board game. I feel like it's like this crazy board game where you're like, oh, you landed on get kidnapped by Zetas. Um, <laughs> like the worst version of Monopoly. <laughs> you have to, you have to, you have to telephone your relative in your home country and have them wire three thousand dollars to this particular person in order to get you out, and then oh, you will get a white card, and with your white card, you will have safe passage. I am so not making this up. Oh this is God. really what happens. So that if you get if you if you get nabbed by another group of Zetas, like slightly north of where you were, you can show them your car to be like, hey, I already paid you guys. And they'll be like, all right, keep going. <laughs> that, oh really that really happens. So after getting through that part of the board game, if you get if you get to the US border, um, then there's like, you know, another bad part of there's another bad square on the board that you can land on and you either are allowed through or you are put in this ridiculous program called um the migrant protection protocols or wait in mexico 
and again, this is more historical, like over the past year, like not what is happening this day, because this day, today, November 2020, everything's just a giant cluster and, and it changes from day to day, quite honestly. So some of my clients have have had to wait in Mexico in for their court hearings in places that are ridiculously dangerous, like Tijuana. Uh, Tijuana is known internationally for how ridiculously dangerous of a city it can be. So my clients wait in Tijuana and they're told to show up at the border tower at like three or four o'clock in the morning. And then they're put on a bus and taken to the immigration court. Well, you know, I had one of my clients, she and her children were going from the camp, the refugee camp to the um, place where she was supposed to be to present herself. And she got mugged. And so all of her papers and documents that she was supposed <gasps> to present oh, were stolen. No. And she couldn't even get, like, yeah. So another, oh, you know, no. another bad square you can land on. Getting, you got mugged in Tijuana. Yeah. So if, by the grace of God, you are able to get through the border, it is because, um, usually, it's because you passed a credible fear interview. And a credible fear interview is usually done on the phone and with an asylum officer. And the purpose of that interview is to decide if that individual has an objectively reasonable fear of um, going back. Like, you know, is, oh, is this is your asylum case viable? Huh, I thought I thought fear was going to be an acronym for something. Like, no, no, it's actually like real fear. fear. It's actually like real fear. Are you really afraid to go back to your home country? And I mean, is your is basically what they're looking for is to see if it's humanly possible for them to have a viable asylum case. Mm -hmm. And they're checking to make sure to the extent possible that they are who they say they are. So, so most, for many of my clients, that was their journey, but there have been some very nutty processes along the way. Like there was the same family, whole family separation fiasco, which is still going on to some extent because we don't know where many of those children's parents are. I have, I represent um, a few families who went through that process. Um, one of my, one of my families, um, mom crossed first and mom was pregnant, very, very pregnant. So they let mom go because they didn't want to risk mom giving birth in detention because they'd have to pay for that. And then dad and seven-year-old crossed and they took seven-year-old away from dad. And then they told the seven-year-old that his dad left him because he didn't like him anymore. You're joking. No, this is, this is it, like the, the active cruelty with the, with some of these border patrol officers is incredible. Was it, that, it's so like, spectral. It's so spectral. Like on the same, by the same token, like they can also be like the most humane people and rescue people from dying on the one end and the like these amazing heroes and on the other end 
the same people are can be ob just objectively and actively cruel. So, this so that was meant to be some kind of joke. Yeah. Or, yes. Right, for they, their were own they were just fucking around with this little child. And um, he was, after being in his cage for a little bit, he was taken to a, um, a faith-based, like, um, children's home. So a lot of the, a lot of the organizations that run these sort of, they're kind of like orphanages, but they're not, you know, um, these homes for these children on the border where these children just sort of have to wait to be reunified with a relative who's not in custody or wait to be sent back. These are faith-based programs, a lot of them. Um, and so I work in cooperation with a church. So I had to tell this. And so he's freaked out by churches because he, you know, because he associates anything that's remotely church-like with the place that, you know, he was kept from his dad. I'm like, no, here, when kids, when kids come, come, come to this church, they're allowed to go back with their mommy and daddy. So after we talk, I promise you'll be allowed to go home with your mommy and daddy and it'll be okay. Um, and then he just kind of looked at me funny. Like, I don't know if you're lying, you crazy white woman, but you oh know, we God. played for a while and then he was allowed to go home. <laughs> like, oh I didn't even God. really like talk to him much. I just like, we just played and let him go home. How long, he, how long was he separated from his father for? Um, about three weeks. Three weeks. And, that's a really long time for a seven, for seven Yeah, that's a long time. And then he yeah. was, he ended up getting um, reunified with his mother. It was just this, and then his father came later. It was this whole thing. And then we had to go to immigration court and there are, immigration court is like, you know, there are guards there and they have weapons and they're in uniform. And so he's terrified of anybody who's in uniform. Mm. So interestingly, the guards at most of the immigration courts are contractors and they don't work directly for the federal government. So I pulled this one aside. He's like my buddy. And I was like, look, I have this kid. He was in a cage and he's totally going to freak the fuck out about coming here. And I need you to help me out <laughs> and um, tell him, like, come over and meet him and tell him that he's going to walk out the door. <laughs> And he was totally cool. Like he came and he met him and he chatted. I was like, yeah, you know what? You're going to go in there. And I promise like your mom and your dad are going to be with you and your lawyer is going to be with you. And you're going to walk right back out of here when the judge is through. Okay. And then he gave the kid a high five and he smiled and he shook his hand. And then the kid was alive. like, but it's like, it took some major interventions just like <laughs> to get the kid not to freak out about going to court. Well, I mean, of course, like you take any child into a very strange and extremely formal setting where people are speaking in a foreign language and you haven't seen anybody you know in three weeks. I mean, that that's going to be distressing for anybody, let alone a child that's just made the journey, the harrowing journey yeah. that you just described up through the Northern Triangle. It's absurd yeah. to think that anybody would be mentally fine with that. Yeah, well, by the time I by the time we went to court, it was probably about eight or nine months since he had been released, but he was still um, very trepidatious. I mean, he had a lot of even after that amount of time, and he was in therapy. 
Um, mm. He was still a little scared, but you know, we, our plan went great. And then, um, and then afterwards we, um, we went to, uh, we went to breakfast in Washington, DC. And um, what's amazing is like, even though Trump lives in the White House, so many mm. of my clients want to see the White House. So for, with a lot of them, this was before the pandemic, for a lot of them, I would bring them with me on the train. So it's about a two hour train ride from Richmond to um, Arlington. And Arlington is just outside of Washington, DC. And in the area in which I live, um, which is Virginia, the immigration court for Virginia and West Virginia is in Arlington. So we go to the train, then we go to the metro, and we go to the immigration court. And, you know, my clients have very different reactions to that whole, like, process. You know, some of them get on the metro and they're, like, super freaked out. And um, some of them were like, this is so cool. Mm. And um, if there's time before our train returns, then I'll take them into the city and, um, you know, show them something. Um, if, as I said, if there's, if there's time. My favorite train story was I took this mom and child. Um, the mother was a, um, a journalist in Honduras. And she had a child who was born like within days of my niece, Salome. So he was five years old at the time when we went. And he had, was so excited about the train that he like didn't sleep for two days because he was um, going on, you know, because we were taking the train ride. And it's really early in the morning. It's dark because we have to get the train at six o'clock to get to Arlington by eight. And he's, you know, telling me, he's like, he's like pointing to the top of the train. And he's like, well, aren't we, aren't we going up there? I'm like, no, honey, we're not, we're not, we're not riding on the top of the train. Avogadro got us a ticket. We all got wow. tickets. We're riding inside the train where it's warm. And he's like, really? Oh. So you get to go inside the train? That's so cool. Oh. And he took the entire train ride up there. He was standing by the window. He was just standing by the window what, for two hours, just standing by the window looking out. And then on the way back, he just crashed. Oh, my God. This is – I have, I have so many questions for you because, sure. I mean, it's not very often that you get to speak with somebody who is working – with this problem and, and trying to help people and, and knows the reality of it because obviously like <laughs> the whole border control and immigration process has kind of really come under scrutiny in the past four years during the Trump administration mm -hmm. um, because it was kids in cages this kind of you know lexicon surrounding the immigration process but obviously family separation was actually you know administered under the Obama administration, that's when that policy started in, being. In, to some extent. So let me let me explain the difference between the Obama family separation and the Trump family Please separation. Please do. All right. So family separation has existed. And I can't tell you exactly when it started, but yes, it did happen in Obama. But 
the purpose and intent were different. So one of the responsibilities of the border officers is to make sure that the children are not victims of human trafficking and to make sure that the person who purports to be mom really is mom. And so if you are going through the border as an immigrant and you cannot prove that the child is yours, like you don't have a birth certificate for the child, or if you are not the child's parent, if you're the child's aunt or the child's grandmother, then there's going to be a problem. And that mm. dates that dates back. And that's because the Border Patrol, I mean, has a duty, I mean, under international law, I mean, it goes back to like the Hague Convention and stuff. Like you can't bring kids in who aren't yours. So under Obama, they did separate families and they did, but they didn't put little kids in cages, number one. But when they separated children from the um, family members who brought them, it was because number one, there was a question as to whether or not mom or dad really was mom or dad. Or two, the family member who brought the child was not a parent and then the Office of Refugee Resettlement had to go through and try to find an actual parent. So right. that was what was going on back then. Okay, so, so, so that, yeah, policy, that policy was only enforced in order to verify if the child was a victim of human trafficking. Or that was you know, the major purpose the of it. That was, right. That was the major purpose of it. It was not punitive in nature. Now, when we fast forward to the summer of um, 2018, um, things are radically different. And now there's a punitive intent. So the way family separation manifested was the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Justice decided that they were going to enforce a law, which really shouldn't be a law for a whole nother reason, that crossing the United States and entering without inspection is a federal misdemeanor. And that they were going, that the Justice Department was going to start criminally charging people who entered without inspection. And as a result of criminally charging someone, so when you, they're basically dad or mom is taken to jail. And because dad or mom is taken to jail and not immigration detention, that is what resulted in the separation. So the kids would end up in cages and then in these um, homes, these giant, institutional homes, not like a foster home, not like a place where they get to like chill out with the family or anything like that. Mm. Um, so because the Department of Justice was prosecuting the parents, that's why the children were separated because there is no family jail. Like if, you know, if your mom is arrested for drugs in the, you know, within the United States, you're not going to jail with your mom. So that's how this entire cruel scheme um, manifested in the United States. And it stopped mm. once they decided to stop prosecuting 
the people who entered without inspection. So Obama did not, wasn't prosecuting people who came in with children, like right there at the border, unless they were like, there were some instances where, you know, people had re-entered multiple times. So it's when you enter without inspection, it is a crime that sort of, that elevates every time you try. So every time you try, it's a, the penalty is worse. So what's different about Trump is they're prosecuting, you know, first offenders, you know, first time you come into the United States, you have no criminal history in the United States because you've never right. been here before, okay. but we're still prosecuting you. So that's how that ended up happening. Right. So that was the difference. So that was, so there, there's a key difference there. And the key difference between the Obama administration and the Trump administration is the malicious intent of the Trump administration. Right. Okay. That is, um, thank you for clarifying. That is a very clear distinction and one that isn't really talked about enough. I mean, I think what we're kind of seeing now in the world is that there's so much going on and so much to talk about that the surface arguments are only ever presented. Um, mm -hmm. And it's very easy to dismiss such cruelty of the Trump administration if you, all, the only thing you know, as I did earlier, well, you know, it was happening before as well. Um, and so often gets spun then as a liberal attack on <laughs> Donald Trump as opposed to unearthing the actual reality of the situation, which is, as you say, malicious intent. Um, uh -huh. What about these cages? I mean, are they actually cages that we're talking about that, that children are being put in? Well, I mean, they're... I haven't personally seen one because I haven't personally been down there. Um, what I can say is they are in confined, confined spaces within larger spaces. I mean, I can only, I will describe to you what's been described to me as opposed to what I've seen in the media. Um, because what we see in the media is incredibly filtered. We have to remember that whatever we see in the media is whatever the hell the Department of Homeland Security lets the media see. Hmm. Because the media can't get in there without their permission. Right. So, so what is ex described to me is like smaller, smaller spaces that, yeah, like a, think of like a bigger, like a very, very, large kennel for your dog but like smaller spaces inside something that's sort of like a warehouse and um these the warehouse generally um they call it the 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 migrants call um these places yeleras like yellow which is the spanish word for ice so it's um translated loosely as icebox Right. Um, because they're freezing cold in there. And theoretically, you're only supposed to be 
um, if you're a child, you're not supposed to be in there very long because there was a whole lawsuit about it that you can't keep children in that kind of custodial setting. But for a period of time, they're there. And they're there until they're transferred to these homes that are, um, that it, so that kids who are separated go to homes that are like just for children. And, um, but they are like, I mean, they're still in custody. Like, no. you can't forget that. They they still have absolutely no control over their lives. Like they still have to ask if they can go to the bathroom. Jeez. Um, and, and do they it, receive any, I mean, education while they're in there or any contact with family? Yeah, I mean, they receive, uh, you know, they, they do school. And it's interesting in that the quality of, of these particular homes is varies. Like some of them uh, appear to do like, they appear to try and others, I mean, I wouldn't board my dog. Oh, I don't have a dog. I wouldn't board <laughs> my sister's dead dog in. So, you know, um, yeah. so, yeah, it's, they do get some sort of school um, if, and, um, you know, interaction with other kids and things like that. But they don't get to talk to their parents for very long. And when they do, that's monitored. So like oh, wow. there's, some, yeah, it's, that's harsh. Um, and then there are these, um, right now, now that family separation has mostly ended, and it's still going on to some extent because I still have children who are, um, who come with people who aren't their, you know, parents. I, I have children who come unaccompanied, meaning that they cross the border without a parent or without any adult, um, usually for the purpose of reunifying with a parent here in the United States. And if a child comes across the border unaccompanied, then they end up in these um, children's homes um, along the border. Or actually, you know, they're not all along the border. I mean, there's, you know, there are a few even in New York, you know. New um, York. Yeah, yeah, actually. I had one kid who was actually in, a, in one in New York. And she actually said it was pretty good. Um, so, so the families, like if you cross with your, like if a mother crosses with her kids, then there are the same sorts of places, but that have, that allow parents and children, but they're still in custody, but right, it just yeah. doesn't look as much like a jail or prison, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then, um, and then they're either released beca um, because they pass an, uh, a credible fear interview or because they, um, there's not enough room. Like sometimes I just, you know, in the past, they, when there was a huge surge of people crossing, they would just rotate people out very, very quickly because of space. Um, mm. And there was a surge of people. Oh, I think that started probably in, I want to say in February of 2019 and the winter, the early months of 2019, um, because there was fear that Trump was going to get the border wall up. 
This is so ironic. This is something that the Republicans just can't get through their thick skulls, is the more you talk about building walls and making it impossible to get to the United States, the more people are going to come and the faster no. they're going to come yeah. because they're going to be like, well, shit, we're not going to be able to get across in two years. Might as well come now. And so this, this surge in, in migration from, from the Northern Triangle happened as a direct result of Trump promoting his wall because people were thinking that they weren't going to get through. And people even like if I, I've interviewed some of my clients and or some people who I've consulted with and they're like, yeah, well, I was thinking of maybe coming in 10 years, but, you know, that wall is going to go up. I was like, better go now. Wow. So it really had the opposite effect. of what Wow. Yep. The um, everything in immigration is full of strange ironies. So what? Yeah. What are their prospects like after, you know, say they get through Im- the border and then their case is accepted at immigration court and they, you know, have asylum in the United States? Are they given help after that? Well, so there's this um, sort of purgatory between the time that uh, these families um, get through the border and the time their case is decided. And the amount of time varies from state to state. So if the migrant lives in a state with a huge immigration court backlog, it could take four years from the time they cross the border till the time their case is decided. Oh, wow. So, um, if they live in, um, a, in a place with not much backlog, it can you know be as fast as 18 months. So the, the sad, hard, terrible truth is asylum is incredibly difficult to get. And there is so much inf- misinformation out there in the immigrant communities about what it is and what it's for. Asylum, political asylum, the way it is now really comes, you know, as a result of World War II. And, you know, uh, the the allies in the country um, really wanting to make sure that genocide doesn't happen. And so there was a, so there are a few documents, a few seminal documents created, um, one in the 50s and um, another one that the U.S. signed on in the 60s. And the, the, the participating countries, the, the signatories of these countries, basically all agreed on the same thing, that this is what asylum is. So in order to win an asylum case, and this would be true, like even like the same principles apply, whether you're in the United States or Canada or, you know, the UK, um, you have to prove that that you have that you're going to be persecuted um, on account of 
And that's what's really important. On account of your race, your religion, your nationality, which includes your ethnicity, your political opinion, or your membership in a particular social group. So if you cannot connect, it's a game of connect the dots. If you cannot connect your persecution, what happened to you in El Salvador with that list, race, religion, nationality, political opinion, membership in a particular social group, you can't connect your persecution with one of those things, no asylum. And it doesn't matter really how bad your persecution was. And that's what's really sad and messed up about the whole system. So it really doesn't matter that, yeah, you're probably going to get killed if you go back home. What matters is why. So are you going to get killed because you're a black man from Honduras married to a Latina woman? Then yay, you win. You have asylum potentially because you can connect the fact that you are that you can connect your persecution to race. That's a check mark. But then even if you can connect your persecution to something on the list, you still have to prove more things. You have to prove that the government of your country cannot or will not protect you. Um, and you also have to prove that if you moved to someplace else within your country, that you wouldn't be safe. So unless, unless it's the government that's your persecutor. So let's just say you're a, a, a black guy from the um, Caribbean coast of, uh, of Honduras, okay? And um, you married um, a Latino woman and you move to her neighborhood and people really don't like that. Um, you, suffer, you suffer from ridiculous racism, not just being called the N-word and stuff, but you know, you're, you go to the grocery store and you're beaten within an inch of your life. Mm. You know, this, I'm actually describing something that is very similar to something I have right now. Okay. So, you are persecuted on account of race. Okay. But it's not the government itself that is his persecutors. It's the average neighborhood racist that, is, that are his persecutors. So because it's the average neighborhood racist that are his persecutors, he has to prove that if he moved somewhere else within his country, he wouldn't be safe. So he has to prove, basically, that if he were to move to his part, his little region, where his people are from, that they wouldn't accept his Latina wife. And he has to prove that if he lived where she is, that um, he would suffer. It's complicated. How do you prove with, that? With difficulty. Yeah. With extreme difficulty. And you use experts. A lot of times, and you know, folks cost money. Um, you use experts, you use UN reports, um, you use reputable 
newspaper articles, if you can find them, um, about this, you know, about specific things. So, so you, it's difficult. Another example that I use constantly when I try to explain things to my clients is, um, about how asylum works is, let's say you have um, a whole bunch of vendors in a market, okay? And there is a gang. Let's say you're in, let's just say you're in MS-13 territory, okay? And MS-13 um, is extorting people in the market. But for some reason, and this never happens, by the way, this is only an example. Um, let's say MS-13 is only extorting the people of indigenous descent in the market. So you're in, you know, Baja Verapaz, Guatemala. You're in an open air market. You are of Mayan descent. Um, and MS-13 is extorting you, and uh, but not extorting your vendor neighbor who is not indigenous. And MS-13 is um, calling you horrible racial slurs and saying that they're going to kill you if you don't give them money because you are, you know, nasty word, nasty word, nasty word related to your indigenous, um, indigenous status. Yeah. Okay. You've got persecution on account of um, race and or nationality. Good. Check mark. Great. Then you also have to prove that the government of your country cannot or will not control your persecutor. So then you have to go through this whole song and dance about how powerful MS-13 is in a particular in a particular country. And in Guatemala right now, I mean, in Guatemala right now, they're really they're really smart. Like they're infiltrating the government from the bottom up and really swaying like local elections and exerting their power um, uh, locally and controlling, you know, municipal races and um, basically buying local officials. So if your mayor or somebody won the election because, you know, MS helped them, then the police force is not going to go out and arrest the, um, the, the leader of MS that is extorting you. <laughs> So you have to so you have to go into this whole thing about how they're like almost a quasi political party themselves mm, mm. and you know with their own militia like it's and would, would you say that the the list that you've just described is inadequate that there are th certain things that should be there that that point to persecution or that are examples of persecution that are simply not highlighted? It depends upon the interpretation because one thing in that list, one item in that list is member of a particular social group. And that is not really defined. And that is something that me, that me as a lawyer, that's what I do is I try to figure out, can I put you in a particular social group? Mm. Can, um, be, so 
a particular social group, sometimes it's, you know, very easy to be, oh, yeah, you're a particular social group. Like you're, like if you are um, a trans person or uh, a person with a um, disability, um, you know, there are, you know, that's kind of easy, like not easy, but less, let's just say less hard. More evident, um, perhaps. Yeah, less hard the to average. Sell. Yeah. Um, but if you are, if something is not as evident, um, then it can get difficult. And then the, the hard part becomes convincing the judge that whatever you proffered really is a particular social group by way of example, Guatemala God, and then you've got the who cannot leave their relationships. God, and then you've got their, like that judge's own perceptive bias potentially yeah. swaying one way or another it's it's a completely subjective system that these people's asylum is kind of forced right. into so then you have this this other like ironic result so one particular social group is the family okay um so we live together we have we sh you know i have the last name of my father um this is my spouse, you know, we are a family. A family is a particular social group. So let's say, hypothetically, you are in El Salvador and um, Barrio 18 um, is extorting your dad for money be, and, um, because your dad owns a business and anyone who owns a successful business is a target of extortion. All right, so let's say your dad is a target of extortion by um, by this by the, uh, one of the gangs. Um, what the way the gang enforces its extortion is rarely by hurting dad. Usually, it's by grabbing mom, beating the shit out of her, raping her, tying her up, and then leaving her in you know the home for dad to find when he comes home. Or kidnapping the kid. Like I've ha I have kids with like scars on their arms from being cut when they were babies by um, gang members. You know, extorting their parents. I mean, just like absolutely unimaginable things, right? So and that's and that's not evidence enough. Scars on a children. So here, here's what, here's, here's what, it's so fucked up. It's so fucked up. So the child and mom can claim that they are persecuted on account of their family relationship to dad, okay? Because right. being a family is a particular social group. Mom um, was persecuted because she was dad's wife. <laughs> but, there, but then, like, what particular social group does dad belong to? Like, dad's the actual recipient of, like, the direct the direct victim of the extortion. So dad doesn't get asylum, but mom does. Wow. Yeah. Oh, God. I mean, how That's do you even begin? Messed up. Yeah. How do you even begin to address the, the problems in the, you know, in this system? Do you think that there's a good foundation um, from which to rebuild? Or do you think that the U.S. needs to look at other 
I can't actually think of any place that has a really great example. Nobody of, has great. So here's my my opinion is that yeah. um, my opinion is that the reason why this particular area um, is seeing we are seeing such migration from the Northern Triangle in the U.S. is in large part due to the actions and inactions that the United States took with regard to these specific countries. We had a we had an enormous hand in the Guatemalan Civil War. Like the way we interfered with that and contributed to the indigenous indigenous genocide is really quite remarkable. Um, with these countries, the a large part of the reason why they're failing is due to actions or inactions by the United States. Honduras. Um, one thing that I will actively criticize Hillary Clinton for, and one thing that she, she deserves a lot of blame for, is what she did as Secretary of State with regard to Honduras and backing a coup. And she put in power just a, a ridiculous, horrible, corrupt human being. And who is that? Well, he's not in power now. Um, but so um, this is this, his name, whole, right? So, um, so the the so this was in. Oh my gosh, I get my sometimes I get my my histories of these three countries conflated. But yes, so there was this coup during the Obama administration while Cl Hillary Clinton was in power. Put, put in the president, bad dude, bad dude. Um, and at that same time... President Zelaya? Uh, no, um, I want to say it was uh, Orlando, Juan Orlando Hernandez. But um, okay. so, um, so that, I mean, she, I, she was trying to, the coup was in 2009, but what happened afterwards was really unimaginable. Um, so in Honduras around that time, the Honduran National Police Force was the major was a major source of violence and corruption. After Zelaya was um, was was ousted, um, the Honduran National Police just were like, <laughs> so that the new guy just couldn't get a handle on them. And in Honduras, you didn't have this situation where gangs were running around extorting people. You had a situation where the police were running around extorting people. And I have, I, I, I mean, it was, this was one of my earlier cases and I didn't believe it until I actually saw it. So I have this family um, from Tegucigalpa, from the, the um, capital of Honduras. And they just had a very, very small business, basically like running the equivalent of a 7-Eleven. And so they were not extorted by gangs, they were extorted by the police. And they brought me this letter. And on this letter was a file stamp 
like the seal of the Honduran National Police was on this letter. And it said, you know, it loosely translated, hey, motherfucker, we're the police, we're going to find you, blah, blah, blah. I mean, they shot at this guy. They beat him in the head with with bricks. Um, so it was the Honduran police that were running around um, extorting people. It was just, I mean, it was really outrageous. And that resulted in an enormous influx of um, of migrants from that country as a result of direct police violence. I mean, we think we have a problem with police violence here in the United States, and we most definitely do. But it is just absolutely incomparable uh, um, to what has been going on historically in in Honduras. So whatever Hillary tried to do, yeah, it really didn't work. And mm. the result was the result was was horrible because the um the government, I mean the new leader was not was it is corrupt himself and was not able it, it just let the police sort of run wild. And then there was this, then there was this purge. Well, you know, they recognized that they, the government of Honduras recognized that they had this huge problem with corruption. Woo woo! And so they tried to purge the police force and that didn't work. Shocker. <laughs> and that didn't work. Be, uh, because even after the great purge, there was a, you know, <laughs> even after the great purge, um, I don't know if it was the actual guy in charge or maybe the number two um, who survived the purge was charged with international drug trafficking. Like, I mean, it's, it's really, really outrageous um, what's going on there. Do you find that the majority of people are escaping um situations like the ones that you've described and you know places like Honduras with all of this violence because obviously we all know that immigration is brilliant for um economic development for cultural development it's generally a win-win situation but one of the counter arguments to immigration is you know people are going to take advantage of the system of immigration or the system of asylum um People that don't need asylum, you know, the quote unquote bad guys, dangerous people are going to come in and take advantage of the situation. It's it's a common counter argument. It's one Trump even used sure, <laughs> in um, his presidential sure. bid four years ago. What What is your experience of it? So I think that about 75% of the people who come to see me um, are fleeing legitimate violence are, are fleeing something um, are fleeing danger that they can't control in any way in their home country. And I'm not talking about just generalized country conditions. I'm talking about specific threats to them. Okay. Because, right. um, you know, when I ask people, why are you afraid to go back? And if they tell me, well, it's, you know, there's no work and it's a dangerous country. That's about 25% of the people. The other 75% tell me a very personal story about how they were targeted for violence. Um, a lot of times for women, it's domestic violence. Um, uh, for children, it's, 
interfamily violence. Um, and for a lot of other people, it's just, um, it's, you know, violence at the hands of the, the police in, or sometimes um, government officials, but in most cases, uh, gang-based violence. Wow. So most people do have, and this, this is not everybody, but I would say most, most people do have a legitimate fear of return. And what is difficult is to try to put their very legitimate fear of return, which is a very round, fluid thing. It's a round, fluid experience into the square peg of yeah. asylum. So yeah. I have to frame it in a way that fits within the law. Yeah. Um, and the people who don't have, um, you know, a targeted fear of return, that's, as I said, that's not as often, um, but usually they're fleeing, um, they're fleeing, you know, widespread poverty. For women in particular, um, I haven't talked about gender enough in this context. For women in particular, it is very, very difficult to get on in these countries if you are a woman. If you are a single woman and you are living without a man, that is considered to be socially taboo unless you are of the elite upper class. And even then it's considered a little socially taboo. Um, it is the protections for women against domestic violence exist on paper, but are not enforced in practice. Women tell me stories of being not just you know, like what what I would think of domestic violence, you know, is is just what most of my female clients would just consider Tuesday. <laughs> like um, domestic violence that these women experience is on a level of egregiousness that you know my my North American mind could cannot you know, wrap my, I can't wrap my head around some of the things that happen to these women. And we, I don't, and I don't even like to call it domestic violence because that's, that's not what it is. It's domestic torture. Okay. These women are not victims of violence. They are victims of actual torture. Um, and they can't get away. It's there's this whole horrible dynamic whereby men are unable to let it go. If if it's the man's choice to end a relationship, then there's very there's not often a lot of danger to the woman. But if it's the woman's choice, that hurts the man's ego. That hurts the man's reputation in the community it wounds his masculinity to the point where the only way he can regain it is by hurting the woman or by very often killing her the whole concept of machismo and yeah. um how that relates to dominance and um masculinity and men cannot be seen as weak and they have to prove their masculinity on a constant basis and for a woman to leave a man or for a man to be perceived in his community 
as being in any way controlled by a woman. That will weaken him in in his community's eyes. So the way that um, men assert their uh, assert their dominance and assert their place with other men is through violence and it's not what we it's, it's not what i you know what my friends hand. experience you know like you know yeah. you know a typical like you know punch in the face or yeah. um something like that like it's it's the stories that i have heard would be considered torture if in any other context in contexts that were not done by domestic partners Okay, then then I want to just swing back to something we discussed a little bit earlier um, about the the 75% versus 25%, you Mm -hmm. know, 25% of people that maybe just, you know, are looking for a better situation, which is obviously also, in my eyes, a perfectly fine thing to do. I mean, if you look at Europe, we're all just moving around trying to find, you know, the place where we want to be. But there's obviously no place for that machismo culture in Western Anglo culture. Um, It's completely contrary to feminism. It's completely contrary, I mean, to one's own bodily autonomy and um, rights to to self-govern, one's own sovereignty. Um, So how do, do we deal with the problem of immigration when it comes to cultural clashes, to getting people into safety, but also ensuring that no part of that culture that doesn't fit with ours and maybe one that we've already ironed out. How do, how do we make sure to, to, to manage that? To not invite well, the wrong things in. Well, by education, and that's, that's, that's it, by education. Like if... Domestic violence is just so pervasive in these countries that, and, and it's because it's socially, I don't want to say it's socially accepted, but yeah, you know, that's, um, that might not be a politically correct thing to say, but I'm just, based upon my experience and the women that I see, um, you know, what, what, these women believe their duties are with regard to their domestic partners and what I believe my duties are to my domestic partners, which, you know, I don't have any. Um, but let's say hypothetically, I had one, like you're doing your own laundry, you're cooking your own food. And if you want the house cleaned, hire a damn maid. Um, that's, I mean, <laughs> that's not how it works in, um, in, in Latin culture. And I, and that's, just because our cultures are different. And I think that if we educate men and women and say, here in the United States, you can and will go to jail for hitting a woman. And hitting a woman means any contact that she doesn't actively consent to. And then you go to the women and you say, in the United States, you have these rights. You don't have to have sex with your husband if you don't want to. In fact, it's actually illegal for your husband to make you have sex with him if you don't want to. Um, That surprises so many people when I tell them that because like I, you know, women, you know, will tell me, um, will disclose what our 
in actuality rapes, but they don't say that. But like, but we're married. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I, 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 I understand. But here you can't. Here in the United States, you can't rape your wife. Really? Mm. No, you don't. No, no. You, you, you can't rape your wife. You can't rape your girlfriend. No, we, uh, we have laws against that. Um, mm. So if you actually just go through and explain that, and then you, um, through some, through some education, I think, I think that will help a lot. And if men understand that we enforce these laws it's not just that they're on the books that we enforce them and women understand this is where you go this is the number you call this is what will happen these are the shelters and places that you can go if both sides understand that there are these resources available just by virtue of the fact that laws against domestic violence are enforced here in the united states i think that Maybe it's ignorant of me, but I think that in some way reduces it here. Um, so it, it, believe me, it does not work all the time. I have many, many clients, you know, where I represent the, many, many clients who come to me um, who are migrant women who are victims of domestic violence in the United States, and they just don't know what to do. Um, so I think that's how you deal with, with, with that part. Of it. I mean, um, education is at its core potentially the the solution to every possible yeah. societal and cultural problem that we can think of. And if it was only taken more seriously, um, maybe we wouldn't be facing such issues. And if people were given support once they arrive as well, and you know, given genuine education, and education is also about as you exactly as you're saying hey these are your rights here this is what you are allowed to do and this is what you're allowed to say no to um it's incredibly empowering but unfortunately i don't know it's it's just not something that's particularly done well anywhere education that's true um, yeah listen i want to wrap up on a potentially harrowing end or harrowing question it depends on okay. your answer how many of these people, these 75%, these beaten women and scared children and extorted men, how many of them are sent back into that situation? Well, right now, like in 2020, um, I'm gonna have I'm gonna have to give you a guess, and that's because very few cases of mine have been adjudicated. I started doing this um, during the Trump administration. I switched practice areas um, during the Trump administration because I knew that this was going to be the area that needed the most help. So not many of my cases have been adjudicated, but um, the statistics now are incredibly bad, and. I mean, there are national averages that you can, I'm sure, find, and they're based upon a variety of factors. But um, migrants from the Northern Triangle, I think maybe right now this year, maybe one in 50 is actually going to win their asylum claim. One in 50 is going to win their asylum. Yeah. About one in 50 right now. So 
my hope. That, hang on, I'm terrible at math, but that that's like two percent, right? Yeah, it's not good. It's, oh it's my really, god! It's and this yeah, is it's, women, it's, kids, and you know. Yeah, it's it's um. Yeah, asylum is incredibly, incredibly difficult to get. Yeah, and we're having this crisis in large part due to American, due to U.S. interference in this region. So my hope for fixing it is that we grant temporary protected status to the people who are here, um, especially since the region is just being decimated by natural disasters right now. And I think that is so underreported in the media. I mean, we had this horrible volcano, volcanic um, explosion in Guatemala with fuego. That, um, and, you know, the, these hurricanes um, that are key. I mean, you know, it's, South America is going to be an island because I think Honduras and El Salvador are pretty much all underwater right now, except for the mountains. Like, it's bad. Um, so when you understand how just environmentally devastated this region is, it's, um, we're going to potentially be seeing even more migration. So what we have to do is we have to grant protections to the people who to our the people who are here and do something similar to like a Marshall Plan um, for the region to help stimulate its economic growth so that there are jobs in this region that even women can get. There are sustainable jobs available. There's um, international investment. And so that people won't feel like, so women won't feel like they have to accept the fact that they're probably going to get raped in order to come into the United States and maybe find a job that will allow them to eat. Right, right. Yeah. So I, I think that there definitely needs to be some changes to our asylum laws, but that's not the fix. The fix is not in just changing the asylum laws the fix is in is in making some sort of reparations for the damage that we did going back to the 50s honestly um in this region and trying to assist these governments in in expelling corruption and being self-sustaining and encouraging foreign investment and helping these countries um, become places where the people can flourish and the people can have control over their own government. Uh, and I think that's really the answer right now. Um, I think you know, there, as I said, we definitely need to make a few changes to the asylum laws. And those changes in my mind would be we need to follow the UN handbook and the, you know, what the UNHCR says really should go. Um, and I think that would help a lot. But the major problem is the United States and other countries just allowing Central America to just collapse in on itself. And 
not paying any attention to the environmental damage that the collective world is contributing to Central America. I mean, it's not like they burn a whole heck of a lot of fossil fuel down there, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a really, really, really good point. Yeah. And yet they're the ones who are underwater right now. Yeah. A lot of water right now. So I think we have to really, really look at that. And hopefully in 20 or 30 years, um, you know, we can, you know, go on vacation to the Caribbean coast of Honduras without any fear. And because yeah. it's like, I, everybody tells me it's just so beautiful. Um, and, and these, the people, the people will want, will want to stay in these countries and they will want yeah. to stay with their families. And that's, and they'll be able that's to. my hope. And they'll be yeah. able to. And that's my hope. That's my hope is that Biden understands this and appoints people to his cabinet who understand this as well. Okay. Well, Alina, thank you so much um, for your knowledge, for your expertise, and also for the work that you're doing for these asylum seekers coming through the Northern Triangle. Thank you for asking about it. (laughs) And thank you for asking about it, because I think a lot of folks in in, in Europe side um, get little snapshots of what's going on here in the U.S., but it's hard to put together. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing I do to to finish up is always to ask um, if there's someone that you would like to platform. Somebody perhaps who's doing good work in your field or somebody, oh, I don't know. <laughs> My God, there's so many. There's so many. Like there are so many justice warriors out there. So just there, I mean, it's kind of an... It's kind of an endless list. Um, here in Virginia, the immigration attorneys at the Legal Aid Justice Center are absolutely amazing. Um, the people who volunteered to go down to the border, I, I couldn't because I just had too much work to do um, in, in Richmond that I couldn't go. I mean, are amazing. There, there's so many people out there, I mean, it, that are doing such amazing yeah. things. I work in cooperation with the Sacred Heart Center of Richmond, Virginia. And the Sacred Heart Center of Richmond, Virginia, is a community center that provides help, um, um, provides all sorts of programs um, from English classes to citizenship classes. um, And it also has the Family Protection Project. And the Family Protection Project is the program that I work with, and that helps families stay together um, by helping fund. Uh, at least partially, their um, their immigration defense in immigration court. So that's the Sacred Heart Center of Richmond, Virginia. And, and people can uh, make donations to that, right? Yes, people can make donations to that. They're an absolutely wonderful organization. Um, it is really the lifeblood of this community. I live a block away from the center. Uh, and the Family Protection Project in particular is what is um, helping me um, help these folks. And it's the whole reason why I don't turn away a family or stop representing a family for their inability to pay. Um, And I, that is a value of mine that is very important to me um, and that I'm only able to keep 
through donations because we should not return a family to their death just because they can't pay a lawyer. Yeah. So that's ridiculous to me. Um, and yeah. the Sacred Heart Center really helps me do that. Okay. Well, thank you very, very much. Um, well, I'll be thank sure to you. look them up and make a donation. That would be yeah, fantastic. And if you can even yeah. say in that there's a like a little memo box that um, about the Family Protection Project, that would be great. I will absolutely. Thanks so much, Alina. Again. Thank you really so much, Rachel. I appreciate it. No you problem. have a good one. You too. Hi, everyone. You can find the link to the Sacred Heart Center in the show notes. Uh, there's also information on their website about how to donate to them if you wish. As ever, thank you for supporting the podcast. I would love to know what you think about it, so do leave a review. And if you enjoy it, please give the show a five-star rating. It really helps increase our visibility and the visibility of the phenomenal people we speak to every week. Just a quick reminder as well, for the newsletter, you can go to stories.platformenterprise.com to sign up for original reporting every week and support both it and this podcast. Thank you for listening. And see you next week.